resurrection of Jesus Christ is an historical fact. If you're here today, I'm going with that assumption, with that belief uh, as we move forward into the service. Also, I'm believing that you want rest for your souls, that there is something in you that is just saying, I'm ready. I, I need some rest. My world is crazy. You know, during COVID, it was really interesting. Obviously, there was a lot of uh, bad things, frustrating things, hurtful things. But one positive that I heard consistently was this. It slowed my life down a lot. I wasn't as busy. Well, not being busy isn't quite the same as having rest for your soul. But it's that rest for our soul that I believe we all want and that we're all leaning into. Interestingly, when we started this series, we said, hey, let's, let's look at this idea of having rest for our very souls, and let's pick it up and look, look at it from some different perspectives. We looked at it from the perspective of sanctification. That's a, a Bible word. It means to be set apart. It's an idea of holiness. In other words, we, we have rest for our souls because of the work of God in our life that we are set apart for him. Justification was another one. We identified that it is just as if we hadn't sinned because of the work of Christ, and we can have rest for our souls knowing that Jesus uh, took the burden from us. Not just that, but we also looked at atonement. So atonement has a little bit different flavor. We are made at one with God, but we are also made at one with one another because of Christ's work on the cross. Also, Pastor Matt was here just last week, and he talked a little bit about glorification. And so we, have, we can have rest for our souls because we know where we're going. We have a place. We are citizens of heaven. This week, we're coming together to talk about adoption. Now, the issue of adoption, uh, just right from the very beginning, you, you'll start to get this flavor. And the flavor is this. Uh, in terms of adoption, to be adopted means that you, you weren't a part of a family, and then you are adopted into a family. And this sometimes is at odds with contemporary beliefs, uh, as certainly in the United States, where people will say things like this. We are all children of God, and if we mean that we were created in God's image and that God has a plan for each person, then okay, we maybe can go down that road. But what is often meant by that is that we're all children of God. We're all going to heaven just because we're children of God. We were created. We're people. God loves people. He loves me. I'm a people. So hmm, I guess I'm going to heaven. And if that's the case, I want to say that the news is worse. We are not just not children of God in that respect, but we're also not of the family of God. We're not just not of the family of God. We're not of the kingdom of God. We're not just not of the kingdom of God, but we're also considered enemies of God. And that's, that's problematic. Adoption takes us out of being enemies and into a relationship with God that is a loving relationship that has an inheritance and is transforming. More on that in just a few moments. We identified early on that there are some ordinances of the church that really reflect this truth, that God has done a special work in us and we can have rest in our souls because of it. One of those is communion. We'll participate a little bit later in communion. The other one is baptism, and you'll see at least five baptisms here today, and there may be more. 
depending on where you're at with things. You may go, hey, baptism is my next step of faith. And if so, we want to encourage you to engage. And you'll, there'll be a time for you to be dismissed, talk to someone, and uh, have an opportunity for a baptism. And this is what baptism is. It's, it's not salvation. So we don't get baptized to be saved. We are baptized because Christ commanded it after we're saved, after we're adopted. And so in obedience to Christ, we go through baptism. And baptism is this beautiful picture of being cleansed in Christ. So we are dead to sin and death, and we are raised alive in Christ. And that's the picture of baptism. We are adopted in him. And so we'll participate in that a little bit later. With that in mind, I, I want to just pause and pray for us as we get ready to enter the text, as we get ready to look at at God's word, and as we're challenged with perhaps even the way that we think today. Would you join me as we pray? Lord, thank you for the opportunity to get into your word. Thank you, Lord, that your word is true. And thank you that you have a plan. And it's revealed in your word. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. And that today, Lord, this would... We, we can make arguments all day. We can lay out uh, reasons to do something, pros and cons. But Lord, I'm, I guess I'm just asking for your Holy Spirit to move. There may be some people here today who their next step of faith is to be baptized. And maybe even today, I, I pray that they would be faithful. There are others who their, their next step of faith is just living it out day by day by day and being faithful. I ask, Almighty God, that you would give us uh, the strength and the courage and the faith to do just that. We ask that you would be glorified and honored, Lord, as we celebrate you, as we join the hosts of heaven, saying that you are worthy. You're the reason that we gather. So be exalted and be lifted up. And it's in Jesus Christ's precious and holy, holy, holy name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in two places today, Matthew 11 and Romans chapter 8. So Matthew chapter 11 is where we're going to begin, again, with the, with the idea that we believe that each of us wants rest for our souls. And we'll talk about what that might look like. In verse 28 through 30, it says it this way, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Intuitively, we kind of get the flavor of what that means. We understand that God has this, uh, this yoke for us, this burden on us that is lighter than the one we carry. We get that. In Jesus' context, he's referring specifically to the Torah and the rules of Torah. 613 to be exact, those 613 all had specific steps to take to fulfill them, to do what it says. An example would, or a question that would come up would be something like this. Okay, the Torah says, honor your father and mother. How do I do that? Like, that's an abstract idea. How do I make it concrete? And depending on which rabbi, which Pharisee was doing the teaching, you would get a little bit different understanding. And the weight and the burden of the people began to get heavy. So another one, 
Uh, and I've shared this one before, so you may be familiar with it. If, if uh, today's your first day, this, this might be the first time you hear this. But another one would be this, honor the Sabbath and make it holy. Well, how do we do that? Great question. Don't work. Okay. What's work? Glad you asked. And so a rabbi would say something like this. If someone spits on the ground and your sandal goes across that spittle, then you are guilty of working on the Sabbath because you have then plowed. Imagine the burden. Now, I'm giving you specific examples, but I've done it without some more context, and that's maybe not fair. So let me give you some more context. The Roman Empire had come in, and they had started to institute their own rules and regulations on the Jewish people, and they weren't pleased with this. They saw them as uh, as foreigners. They saw them as against God. They saw them as a curse from God. And so any interference that they had with, uh, uh, that the Romans had with the, the, na- the Jewish nation uh, was not seen in positive light. It was very frustrating for them. And so commonly they would think, God, what do we have to do to get rid of them, to have favor in your eyes? What do we need to do? And so to follow the laws, the commandments, was very big to them. Okay, well, maybe I've just been lax in my following of the Torah. So I need to really straighten up. So they would go to these rabbis and hear their yoke, and this yoke would put on, be put on them, and it was very burdensome. And that might sound a little ridiculous to us today, but let me suggest that we do the same thing. Uh, it maybe looks a little bit different, uh, but we do the same thing. Uh, I hear it often. If, if I've heard it a million times, maybe I've heard it two million times. I'm not sure. It's a lot. And it's something like this. I just want to please God by doing what's right. I'm just, I'm, if I just do what's right, I'm like, well, what do you mean what's right? Like, how are you going to do what's right? Well, I don't know, Ten Commandments. Okay. Uh, how are you doing with lying? Well, I've, I've lied. Well, you've broken that. Then we're in trouble. Like, right from the very beginning, we can't be good enough. We can't do things right enough. <laughs> and even if we do the right thing, sometimes it's with the wrong heart or intention, which also makes it the wrong thing. Guilty. So we have some problems, and this yoke that we have put on ourselves is weighty. i got to please God. How do I please God? How do I get to heaven? Maybe if I just do more right things than wrong things. Like, do we think that that's the standard God has? Just do a few more right things than wrong things. Meh, it'll work out. That, that's not, that, that doesn't seem to be the God of the Bible. He calls us to the standard of perfection. And that standard of perfection is only found in him. Like we can't do it without him. That's the point. So what I'm saying is, yeah, God is calling us to righteousness. But righteousness can't be found without him. And that's what we see in this. Jesus is saying, you take on my burden because it's light. My yoke is easy. Take that on. Because what you've put on yourself is very difficult. You're not ever going to be able to hold on to that burden. You'll never make it. And so we see this in Scripture. So what does it mean? What do we do? Here's the answer. Surrender. Surrender. That's the call. Surrender to God. God, I have been against you And I want to be for you. There is a reality, and the reality is that all of us 
unless the Lord comes, all of us will graduate from this life into the next life. And when we graduate, we will stand face to face with the living God. And what will our answer be on that day? I was basically good. That's not going to be a good answer. Or I've surrendered to you, Lord, to your work, to your life, to your spirit in my life. I surrender, God. That surrender is what God is looking for, as we'll see in just a few moments. To get there, though, I want to talk about a couple of things. One of the problems we have is this tension with flesh and spirit. The flesh is designed of three main components. These three main components, if, if you want to, to write this down supplementally to look it up, is found in 1 John chapter 2. If you start in verse 15, verse 16, and verse 17, kind of cover the context of it. And this is what it is, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's satisfaction, it's uh, significance, and it's security. And these three things our flesh is drawn to. We like it. Oh, that, the food was so good. Maybe just a little bit more. Maybe just a little bit more. Maybe just a little bit I am so full I couldn't eat another bite. Maybe one more bite. Satisfaction, and our flesh wants it. That satisfaction can be other things. It can be addictions. I just want to feel good. I don't feel good enough. I just This thing, this stuff makes me feel good. I want that. And that's satisfaction apart from Christ. And it becomes a problem. It also manifests in significance. <coughs> we say things like, oh, I don't want people to look down on me. The family that I grew up in, and maybe you had a family similar to this, where we like to poke fun at each other. At first, it kind of started lovingly, but it, it, would, it would just progressively get worse. And if your feelings got hurt, they would say something like this. We tease you because we love Oh, you had families like that too. Okay. Yeah. Because we love you. And maybe there's some truth to it, but what happens is we start getting into this battle of significance. You've been saying this long enough that I actually think you believe that about me, and maybe you do believe that about me, and I don't think that's who I am. So maybe I'll just work harder, and maybe I'll do these things, and maybe you'll, your opinion of me will change because I want to be significant. And sometimes we get letters at the end of our name because we just want significance, and it's apart from Christ, and that can be a problem. Or maybe it's security. If I just have X amount of dollars in my 401, maybe if I have X amount of savings, maybe if I have this thing, this stuff, these things, apart from Christ, then I'll be, I'll be happy. And that can be a problem. And so our flesh leans into that. Our sp the Spirit of God has a different understanding altogether. In fact, we are talking about two different kingdoms and the problem that we have is we've lived so long in one kingdom that it's not as easy, it's not as intuitive to live in the kingdom of the Spirit. So this gets us to a, a phrase that is popular today called worldview. In the Bible, the, word, the term worldview is, is often referred to as mind of. 
Phronema is the word in Greek, and it can be translated as worldview. It's the way that we see things. It's the context uh, that we put around things so we can understand the world around us. Someone even said it this way, it's like a translator to us. So we're constantly uh, getting information that we have to process, and there's a translator in our head that helps us to understand how to process these things. It's a worldview. And there is a worldview of the flesh that leans into satisfaction, significance, and security. And there's a worldview of the spirit that says, okay, God, I want to find this in you. I want to find this in you. And sometimes that'll be food. And sometimes that'll be position. And sometimes that'll be security. But it's only found in you. It's always connected to you. It's a worldview. It's the way that we see things. And so, with that in mind, that will help us as we walk through Romans chapter 8, verses 3 through 18. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to follow along in your Bibles. You can underline and highlight in your, in your Bibles. I think that's very healthy and helpful as you go back and study those scriptures again. But we'll walk through this uh, kind of fast, so hang in, hang in there. And at the end, we're going to talk about uh, five things for us to consider as we look at this passage. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So the only way for us to be able to remain in the flesh and still walk in the spirit is because of what Jesus has done. Not because of what we can do, but because of what Jesus has done. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds, that's that phronema, the worldview, on the things of the flesh. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Uh, That's the satisfaction, significance, and security. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind, the worldview, on the flesh is death. But to set the mind, worldview, on the Spirit is life and peace. Again, there's a transforming of the lens that we're looking at the world uh, through. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Just like we said earlier, for us to have a worldview that isn't a, a spiritual worldview is hostility towards God. As we already identified, we're all going to stand in front of that God one day. Will he see us as hostile towards him? Or will he see us as his child, surrendered to him? Continuing on. Uh, Let's pick it up in verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. So talking to the church in general, he says, hey, you're you're part of the church. You, You must be walking in the flesh if the spirit of God is in you. I know that. That's that surrender piece. I no longer am going to walk in satisfaction, significance, and security, but I am going to surrender to God and the spiritual walk that he's called me to. Verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ, Jesus, from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. 
So if we're, not, if, if we're not debtors to the flesh, then what do you think we're debtors to? Who do you think we owe? The Spirit, right? The Spirit. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Separation from God. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Immediately, because of... Uh, our, our contemporary context, I think sometimes people will look at this and go, hmm, that seems a little sexist. Why sons of God? Why not daughters of God? Why, what has Simeon said here? Please understand the context of the first century. In the first century, sons got the inheritance. Their daughters would marry someone else's son who got an inheritance. They shared that inheritance. So this is not sexist statement. This is making sure that everyone gets what is due them, that was the context that they live in. So Paul is telling us that for those who have surrendered to Christ, who have received Christ as their Savior, who have the Spirit of God indwelling them, they are considered sons, meaning they get an inheritance. You get an inheritance. Verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Again, this, this term it sometimes is even translated as daddy. It's a very familiar term. Uh, it's something that a child would say to their, their father, their earthly father. It's, it's, again, very familiar, which in the context of Jesus' day would have been very difficult to hear. He is almighty God, so holy, so righteous that we won't even say his name without falling onto the ground. That's how they considered God. So for them to say, no, no, wait, that is all true. He is holy. We should fall on, the, on our faces whenever we say his name. And at the same time, we've been adopted. And because we've been adopted, God has given us this ability to call him father, daddy. There's a tenderness, a relationship that we have that also receives an inheritance. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If we, if, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. If you have your highlighter and pen and your Bible, I want you to underline and highlight that passage right there. And fellow heirs, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Paul is telling the Romans this. Since you've received Jesus, people may want to kill you. Your thoughts, your pattern, your understanding, the way that you look at the world is dynamically different. You're coming at it from another kingdom. And in Paul's context, and Paul himself, who's going to give his life for Christ, he understands that people are making incredible sacrifices and dying for what they believe. But he's saying yet this, and you may suffer. And it, it may be for a year. It may be for five years. Let's just say in our let's say that it's 70 years. And that sounds terrible. Now let's compare that to eternity. And it's nothing. And that's his that's how he's wrapping up this section. So let's pause. And let's consider these five things. 
uh, let's, let's chew on them just a little bit. Number one, the mind is a good indicator of what is going on in the spirit. Uh, we see this laid out in the passage that we just shared. Also in Romans chapter 12, we know that uh, we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. There is something connected with our mind and the spirit that is totally not understood by us. But it's an indicator of something that's going on in the spirit. So, without, without being rude, without being mean, I would just encourage you to be thinking about, what does my mind go to? What are my, what's my default mind setting? Is it satisfaction? How do I get more of that? Is it significance? How do people look more highly at me? Is it security? How can I be safe? Or is it connected to Christ? How does God satisfy me? How does God make me significant? How is God my security? Which way of thinking does our brains go? Do our brains go? Two. If God's spirit dwells in us, then we have life. That's good news. That's good news, and I want you to embrace it because, again, it might not be super intuitive as you consider this truth. You, we have life. In a time where anxiety is off the charts, counselors and pastors are seeing this at record numbers coming in. Oh, there's more anxiety, and this anxiety transforming into other things, maybe even suicidal ideation and worse. It is so good for us to be able to recognize for the believer, for those who have received Christ as their Savior, that there is an indwelling spirit, and that spirit wants to give life. And that spirit has life intended for you, and it's eternal life, and it starts now, and it's not something you have to graduate to get. It's now. That's something we all need. And we see that in this passage, three. If we have life, we do not have the spirit of slavery and fear. Slavery to go back to it. Nah, sorry, I just, I just have to do this. Wait, are you telling me you have to sin? You have to. Could it look like this? Jesus, I'm going to trust you in this moment right now. Okay. How about this moment then? How about this moment? Let's just stay faithful in the moment and watch and see what God does. This, uh, this passage leads us to this, uh, the truth that we are not slaves of sin and death any longer. That Jesus broke that bond. Though there is this tension of flesh and spirit and we're in that tension, we don't have to live in the flesh. We can have victory in those places. Admittedly. There are some times where it is, it's chemical, uh, you need doctor's intervention, I get that. Also, there is a God who has given us the spirit of life and we can have freedom from those things, sin and death. And specifically fear. Uh, I, I, really, I really want us to consider what happens when we live in the past and we live in the future. So it looks like this. I'm this way. I'm the way I am. And I'm the way I am because of something that happened to me. Something that I, I've, I've had to deal with. Maybe it was an abuse. Maybe it was a word that was 
misspoken. Maybe it was a misunderstanding of a situation, but because of that thing, oh, I just can't get out of there. And this leads us to this understanding that actually we can get freedom from that and we don't have to be slaves to the past. What about the future? Some of us are eternal optimists. Oh, it's always going to be better in the future. But many of us aren't. That's the worry happens a lot in the future. What if I don't have enough money in my 401? What if I don't? What if I'm not able to provide for my family? What if my kids fall away from the Lord? What if, what if something bad happens to me? What if something bad happens to my kids or my, my friends? What will I do then? And this mindset that puts us in the future and makes us worry, like we're stuck. Maybe that's why God's name is I am, present tense, not I was, not I will be, but present tense, I am, because we experience God in the present. And as we experience God in the present, we get freedom from some of the fears that happened in the past and some that we look forward to in the future as we meet God in the present. Let's keep going. If we have life, then we have been adopted, according to this passage. Again, what does that mean? Well, when we look at adoption from our context here on earth, there is someone who, uh, uh, who needs a family. They are not a part of your family, and they become a part of your family legally. And they may even have an inheritance legally. It's a, a legal adoption. They, are a part, they may even change their names to match your name because they have legally been adopted. But I want to tell you that that comes short of what a biblical adoption is and what God is even saying. It is true that there is at least a time where we are not a part of God's family. We're not. But his adoption, the adoption that God gives us, is transformative. Let me explain what I mean. Certainly, there is a legal act that has occurred. We now belong to God, for sure. Absolute. We'll be talking about that in the days to come uh, as we walk through Romans together. But also, there's something else that happens that is different than an earthly adoption. And that's this. That God's spiritual DNA is placed in the believer. We're told that God's spirit indwells us. His spiritual DNA that transforms us from the inside. And just like your DNA... As you get older, you look more and more like your parents. Oh, this feature is dad, and this feature is mom, and these behaviors kind of match them. Some of that perhaps even is directed by DNA, could be. Just like that, the spiritual DNA that God puts in us transforms us, that we begin to look more and more like Christ. Well, it used to be really hard to die to myself on seventh helpings. But now, it's a little easier. Now, I'm, I'm not consuming so much. Now, I'm doing it because I, I know God has provided for me. He loves me. He cares for me. I know that the significance that I have is in Christ. I know that the security I have is in Christ. And there's this transformation that occurs more and more and more. And we have this sense that we're adopted. And one of the identifiers is because spiritually, there's a transformation that's occurring that is beyond I'm just not going to do that. I hurt God's heart when I do those things. I, I don't want to break God's heart. I love God. He loves, he loves me. He's adopted me. He cares for me. He's redeemed me. 
I love God. And in that place, there's rest for our souls. Now, this is the, the last part that, that we mostly like to leave out. When, when we're talking about following Jesus, oftentimes we will put these like pros and cons up. We'll use some scriptures, which are true scriptures, absolute scriptures. But often we leave this passage out because very honestly, mm, nobody likes to hear this part. This is what it said. We may have to suffer for this life that's been given to us. In other words, to follow Jesus because it is dynamically different than the worldview that we are uh, immersed in, uh, there may be some persecution. And the guy who wrote this knew a little bit of something about that. He gave his life up, and not before he was nearly beaten to death, made for dead, and thrown outside the gates, brush, wakes up, brushes himself off, and goes back in. Why? Because there's this kingdom of heaven that has adopted him in, not just as a citizen, but as a son with an inheritance that is transforming that he wants others to know about because eternity is much, much longer than this moment that we're here on earth. And it's worth the suffering. And it's worth the suffering. And friends, we may be in days to come, having to give our lives for this faith. It very well could be the case. And we've been told that that might very well be the case. I'm not trying to convince you to be a Christian. I'm not, that's not my goal. I want to tell you that it's hard. I also want to tell you that it's a work of the Spirit, not a work of Kenny. And not a work of mom and dad. Not a work of your neighbor, not a work of your Sunday school teacher. It is a work of Christ. It's God's work. And if you would have eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand, perhaps you would hear the Spirit of God calling you to himself to surrender, to be adopted. Because in that place, there's rest for our souls. There's rest for our souls. I hope that you experience that rest. If you received a pack, a packet, when you came in, I want to encourage you to get those out. If you did not, you can raise your hand or there are some in the back that you can simply go and get. Uh, but we will happily bring you one if you were unable to get that. Uh, love communion. For so many reasons, as I said earlier, we're the visible church joining the invisible church. Uh, Joining the hosts of heaven, proclaiming that Jesus is worthy because he is risen. And we do that when we gather together. Amazing, amazing spiritual truth that we live in and walk in. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, and he gave thanks. And, and in doing this, he began to walk his disciples through something that the church would center around. And that is the symbol of, I am what I eat, and what I eat is Christ, is Jesus himself. I eat, I live Jesus, because he is my life. He gives me life. There's that picture. There's that picture that we're taking of the same bread, the same cup, that we're, we're in this together. There is this uniqueness. Well, you can imagine that as the church started to gather and do this, that it can easily become rote. This is just what we do when we gather. This is part of it. And so because people entered into this flippantly, some started to get sick. Some, the scripture says, even died because they were so flippant about it. 
And so Paul goes to them and he says, wait, 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 before you do this, examine your heart. One, are you a follower of Jesus? This only makes sense for followers of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we're not shaming you. Just don't participate. Then secondly, he said, examine your heart. If you are a follower of Jesus, great. Is there any unconfessed sin? If there is, then just confess it. God already knows. He's not surprised. He wasn't like, whoa, what? You did what? No, just confess that. And we know that from the scriptures, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And that's the, that's the beauty of this moment of calibrating to Christ with communion. And so, as we come together, we remember the body that was broken, that Jesus himself commanded his disciples in obedience to him to participate, remembering that it took God coming in the flesh, God dying on the cross for our sins, God conquering sin and death and extending life to anybody who would call on him for us to have any life, not based on our works, but based on his. And we remember him together. Let's participate. Not just that. Jesus took the cup and he gave thanks and he blessed it. And he told his disciples that this is a new covenant, that this blood that will be shed is not just going to cover sin, it takes sin away. And for all who believe in him, for all who follow him, they have the right to be called children of God. And so we participate together. Let's participate. about to enter into a time of baptisms. We'll worship